0: everybody and welcome to life negotiations in this show i interview professional negotiators and experts on negotiation about everything negotiation my name is lucine meravi i am a professional negotiator and i love sharing information tips knowledge everything i can with you about this fascinating topic now today's guest is an amazing person i really love the work that he does i love the personality that he has He's a wonderful friend. Before telling you his name, let me just tell you what a fascinating background he has. So he has a bachelor's of arts in psychology. He has a master of public policy. He has a law degree. He is a professor at universities. He is a business lawyer. He is director of a company. He is an entrepreneur. He is, I mean, he launched his own company and is managing it successfully. And he is a negotiation expert and he has done a TED talk. He is the one and only Kwame Christian. Kwame is the director of the American Negotiation Institute. He is host of the world's most popular negotiation podcast, Negotiate Anything. And the way we met is when he reached out to ask if I wanted to be guest on his podcast and we had a wonderful collaboration and ever since we stayed in touch and I'm super happy to invite him to share his knowledge and wisdom and his golden nuggets with us. What I love about FOMI and I advise you to connect with him on LinkedIn because he's very active there and you can follow what the work that he does. He work, He writes for Forbes, he gives, he gives, he gives. And. What I love about Kwame is that he shows that negotiation can be very collaborative, can be very nice and warm and kind and authentic and is helping break this stereotype that negotiation has to be competitive and has to be difficult and has to be sometimes even be aggressive. Of course. Sometimes we get to that point, but we don't have to. And there are all kinds of wonderful techniques to help you save time, energy, and money in negotiation. And Kwame is all about that. So I really look forward to this conversation. Join me in welcoming Kwame Christian. Hello, Kwame. I'm so happy to see you, to be with you today. It took us such a long time to have this appointment, right? With our busy, crazy calendars. I really look forward to this conversation. We've known each other for about two years now, when I was a guest on your show, and then we stayed in touch. For those who don't know yet, and even after the... I did my best to give you the amazing introduction that you deserve... But can we please hear from yourself a bit more about yourself and what you do?
1: Yes. Thank you, Lucina. I appreciate it. It's good to see you too. So my name is Kwame Christian. I'm the director of the American Negotiation Institute, and we conduct negotiation and conflict resolution trainings. And like you said, you were one of the guests on our podcast, Negotiate Anything, one of my personal favorite episodes. Thank you for coming. And um, we also have another podcast called Ask with Confidence as well.
0: Wonderful. So my first question is, why do you do what
1: you do so i think when people look at me they say okay kwame you're a business lawyer that's why you're into negotiation but you have to go a little bit further back so when i was studying in in undergrad my degree was in psychology i wanted to be a therapist that's what i wanted to oh, do really? yeah and so um that was the direction i was going and i had um there's this joke in psychology where they say that people like to study the thing that they have (laughs) so they can (laughs) learn to overcome it. And so for me, it was um, overcoming fear. And so it was fear of um, of losing relationships. So I was a people pleaser. And which is funny, considering the fact that I'm a negotiator now. Right. Um, That was one thing. And then social anxiety about uh, public speaking, which, again, is funny, considering I have a TED talk and I speak in public for a living now. And so for me, I recognized that those things were holding me back. And so I wanted to be able to work with people to help them to overcome their fears. And so that was the trajectory. But then I said, okay, well, if I do this, I'm working with people one-on-one, my impact is limited. And then I started to get interested in politics. And that's why I I went to law school and got my law degree and got a master of public policy. Uh, But thankfully, As I went through school and I started to learn more about politics, I said to myself, there's no way I want to put my family (laughs) through that type of existence. And so ever since then, it's really been me trying to find my way back to psychology. And so, of course, I go in and talk to business professionals who are having negotiations, multimillion dollar deals, those type of things. But my real passion is helping people to overcome those fears because we believe at the American Negotiation Institute that the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And so we want to produce as much content as possible to help people overcome those fears. So we have the TED Talk, Finding Confidence in Conflict, the book with the same title, Finding Confidence in Conflict, the podcast, we have the, um, the multiple podcasts we write for Forbes. We just wanna create as much content as possible that's free or affordable um, to help as many people as we can. And then as far as business functionality, then we go into these businesses, talk to leaders who are struggling with managing conflict and negotiators who are managing big deals uh, mm-hmm. to help them get the best deal possible and feel more confident in their skills in the process.
0: Amazing. Well, that's a wonderful mission to have and a wonderful life mission. And uh, I'm glad to be by your side by that mission because obviously that's what's driving me as well. And there's so much to be done, right? So much to be done to help people have better conversations, better agreements, know themselves better, and simply have less conflict in life. So I'm really happy you're doing it. And when you say the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations... Why difficult conversations and what is then on that other side?
1: Well, when you think about it, if you think about the most impactful moments in your life, there's going to be a difficult conversation somewhere in the vicinity of that moment. So to a large extent, our happiness and sadness, success and failure is going to be predicated upon our quality of conversation. And Mm -hmm. so... I tell people all the time, it's not a question of whether or not you negotiate. It's just a question of whether or not you do it well. And so since we're going to have these conversations and they're going to have a significant impact on our livelihood, then we should have them in a way that puts us in the best position for success.
0: Indeed. And in your book and in your TED talk, you talk about this concept called compassionate curiosity. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah. And so for the book and the TED talk, I was trying to find a way to operationalize my process that's rooted both in the the fundamentals of psychology and also just basic negotiation strategy. And so I recognize that people are scared in these conversations. So I can't give them something that's overly complex because in that mental state, you're not going to be able to remember mm-hmm. the theory, even if you understood it. Yeah. Right. And so the compassionate curiosity framework is a simple three-part framework where first you acknowledge and validate the emotions, and then you get curious with compassion by asking open-ended questions, and then you engage in joint problem solving, so collaborative negotiation. But you'll recognize that the first step, acknowledging and validating emotions, that comes from cognitive therapy. That's what therapists use to help the, the, their, their clients, their patients overcome those emotional barriers. And a lot of times in these conversations, we're dealing with high levels of emotionality and we're not going to be successful unless we find a way to overcome that. So we can have more rational dialogue.
0: Amazing. I love it. So acknowledge the emotions. I mean, that is the fastest way to reconnect somebody with their neocortex, right? When they're having all these emotions, they can't think. So by acknowledging that's, You help them reconnect with their thinking brain again. And then you say, you ask open-ended questions. That is where the curiosity comes in and the compassion, the wanting to know, right? What I say in my trainings is dare to care. And then joint problem solving. And that's where I love your collaborative approach. Because unfortunately, many people think that negotiation is something aggressive, right? It's something competitive, it's fight, fight. Whereas... Why choose the hard way if you can do it easier? If you can have a co- collaborative conversation, collaborative approach, we all save time, energy, probably money. So that's always the first thing to try. And I'm, I'm really happy you have that approach as well. And, and we need to promote this first and change this negative concept that still exists around negotiation. Negotiation is like a bad thing or a hard thing or a manipulative thing. We need to get rid of it so... Wonderful. Thank you for the work you do. I'm doing it on the side of the world. So keep doing it. You're a father and we all know negotiations with our children are one of the toughest negotiations, right? So Mm -hmm. can you share anything, a certain experience or tips for our listeners on how to negotiate better with the little ones?
1: Yes. And I'm glad you asked that question because Kai, my son, he's five now. um, He was the person who inspired that first step of acknowledging and validating emotions. He helped me to put words to it. Um, I was reading this book called How to Talk So Children Would Listen and Listen So Children Would Talk fantastic book yeah. and they said that you need to acknowledge the emotions of your child and so when I started doing this it, it really was a game changer in parenting and so my family we're I'm a Caribbean American so my family's from uh, the islands. so my dad's from Dominica my mom's from Guyana and um, usually and when you have uh, immigrant parents there's no negotiation you do what I say to <laughs> do <laughs> Yes. And so when I was telling Kai to do these things, I was always reaching resistance. And it wasn't until I took the time to acknowledge his emotions that we started to have these breakthroughs. And so I use the compassionate curiosity framework at work and at home. It's designed to be versatile. So I'll give an example. So let's say I'm trying to put Kai to bed. Kai does not want to go to bed, they never do. And as an adult, I'm saying, All I want to do is sleep. Why can't you just accept this? And so what I say is, Hey, Kai, it's, it sounds like you don't really want to go to bed. And he'll express himself. He'll say, no, I don't want to go to bed. I want to stay up late and watch TV like you and mommy. Okay. So it, it sounds like instead of going to bed, you would prefer to come downstairs. Is that right? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I understand why you want to do that. And so let me ask you a question. What happens if you go downstairs and you don't get as much sleep as you need? He says, oh, well, then I probably won't grow and be big and strong like you. Okay, and do you, do you want to get bigger and stronger? Yes. Okay, so what do you think we should do then? Well, I should probably go to bed. Okay, that's it. Wow. That's it. And then you, see, you, you just cycle through that framework. Yes. Acknowledge as, as and validate as emotions. As this- Exactly. Yeah. So it it's, it makes life a lot easier once you start to filter every interaction through the lens of negotiation.
0: Okay. I love the approach. Now I have to say your son Kai is also very intelligent to be able to get that kind of answer because my daughter would just answer, what would happen if you weren't an aunt? She would just say nothing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs>
0: So yeah, so negotiation skills are mega important at work, but mainly at home, because that's where we have most of the negotiations. And it's not only negotiation with our kids, it's negotiation with our partners, it's negotiation with our neighbors, it's negotiations with ourselves. where I am super, super, super passionate about this whole aspect of inner dialogue and inner conflict resolution, And that is why I called the show Life Negotiations, because we all negotiate every single day. And just like your podcast, Negotiate Anything, I'm curious about how to negotiate with anyone, including ourselves. And I also believe that having good negotiation skills allows us to be more resilient in life, allows us to face difficulty easier because we have some certain skills that we need when we negotiate with others that we can apply them to ourselves. So is there any situation that you can remember where you were facing difficulty in life, a hardship, a change, something that you didn't expect, that you didn't want, yet you had to go through it? And do you think, and if you're willing to share that with us, do you think your negotiation skills helped you? Do you think being a professional negotiator helped you face adversity better in life? 100%.
1: 100%. And so let me tell you something that's interesting about the, uh, the Compassionate Curiosity Framework, and I know you'll like this, is that it's designed to help you with both the external negotiation and the internal negotiation. The exact same framework applied to yourself helps you to get more self-awareness and reach more emotional st- stability and, um, and uh, clarity for yourself too. So when you're feeling uncertain about something, you acknowledge and validate your own emotions. What am I feeling? What is it that I'm feeling with precision, right? I want to label that emotion that I'm going to ask myself those questions. And then I'm going to figure out what it is that I need to do after this. So I'll give the example of um, when Kai was born. And so I have a, a tendency of underestimating challenges. So I'll say, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I'll commit to it. And then I'm like, why is this so hard? <laughs> and, and that's how it was with, with having Kai. And I was honestly very surprised at the difficulty and my, my response to it. And so I had to say, okay, I'm not handling this very well. I'm struggling here. So what's happening? What do I feel? So I'm feeling a little bit, um, I'm feeling overwhelmed. That's one of the things I'm feeling because there are things that I want to do in work, things that I want to do just in life. Now I'm really struggling to do those things. That balance is difficult. I'm feeling as though I'm not as connected to my wife as I used to be. That's difficult too. It's okay, that's it. I'm gonna acknowledge and validate how I feel. That's step one. Then step two, getting curious with compassion. Self-directed compassion is an integral part of this equation, because a lot of times we are our own worst enemy when it comes to our self-assessments. We're too critical. And if we're too critical, then we're going to cut this introspective process short because it doesn't feel good. We're attacking ourselves. And so I say, all right, so why are you feeling this way? What's leading you to these beliefs, those type of things? And I'm recognizing, all right. I want to be the best husband I can. I want to be the best father I can. And I also want to be very successful in business. And I'm having trouble balancing those things, right? So I'm getting that clarity. All right, now I'm recognizing where this dissonance is coming from. Then we transition to joint problem solving internally directed. And so with joint problem solving, what we're trying to do is we're reconciling the differences between our hearts and our mind. What is it that would satisfy me emotionally in this situation? What is it that would satisfy me substantively in this situation? What do I want tangibly out of this okay and I start to get that clarity and so by doing that I recognize I need to stay connected at home I need to also stay engaged in at work and I wasn't doing a good job of setting those barriers those boundaries and so I need to keep work at work and be the the father and husband I want to be at home. And so as I kept on going through this process, and it's not quick, it's not a quick process, depending on the complexity, sometimes it can be. But in this situation, it it took a few months of constantly going through this process, reassessing and and learning more about yourself through the process. And then I started to get that clarity, made the necessary adjustments and relationship at home with Whitney and my, my son and work. Everything is going a lot better, but I wouldn't have gotten to this point if I didn't take the time to negotiate with myself
0: wow 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 i absolutely love it i can talk about this subject for hours and hours but what you're saying if if you want to do this with yourself it needs like a proper peace negotiation with yourself first and trying to understand yourself of who am i what are my needs and from there take it also how do i talk to myself and am i kind to myself or as you said am i my own worst enemy so this needs a whole lot of relationship building as well right you can't just overnight wake up and have these type of conversations with yourself if you haven't gone through the process of some sort of personal development of getting to know yourself and even forgiving yourself for for all the luggage that you're blaming yourself for and and which we all do, right? Yes. So it goes hand in hand with then personal growth, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely, I think this is the key to personal growth. And even recently, the timing of this interview is perfect um, because I'm I'm really competitive, so I like to everything that I do is driven by competition. And so when it comes to learning, I'm saying I need to learn more because there are other people out there learning more than me. And so I remember a couple of years ago, my my goal, uh, two or three years ago, I started my goal uh, of um, trying to read a book a week, get through a book a week, take notes, review the notes in the morning before I go to the gym as I'm consuming more books. And then I realized I'm consuming a lot which is good for knowledge, but I'm not spending time with myself in silence, which is what I need for wisdom. You need to give yourself some time for these ideas, these concepts to marinate. And I wasn't giving myself that time. And so for the past week, I've not been listening to music in my car. I haven't been uh, listening to podcasts, no books, no nothing. It's just Kwame time. And I'm just spending that time with myself. And silence can be scary. It can be scary. And a lot of times we we delve deeply into these distractions like social media, YouTube videos, all those types of things to avoid wrestling with the uncertainties of life. And I think oh, that's yeah. what we really need to do in order to gain that self-knowledge so we can be effective, just not just in our careers, but also our personal life in general.
0: Absolutely. You're so right. And that silence is really golden, isn't it? When you just are not distracted. And that's when you learn about that voice inside your head about what is it saying? How is it saying it? And that's when you connect with yourself. I remember I had that feeling when I was so I decided to fast this year during the month of Ramadan. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a I'm not a Muslim. This is not for religious reasons. And it was the first time I, I did it. But it was you know, I live in an Islamic country here in Dubai, UAE, and a lot of friends are doing it. So I thought this is a perfect occasion to just go beyond what I think is normal and possible. And out of solidarity, but also out of curiosity, I want to know, what is this? How is this? And then you, know, you have all the beautiful aspects of it. But one of them is this, well, what I experienced and what I would say was the number one benefit for me was this inner calmness. It became more quiet in my head and I didn't have, you know, I I didn't do less. I was continuing to work. I actually started my most important negotiation of my life in that period. But since I wasn't eating, I was only eating one meal in the evening for 30 days and my body was not spending energy on digestion. And therefore, believe it or not, my mind also became just more calm, more quiet. I became more focused and it was beautiful. It was easier to make decisions. It was just more quiet. It was beautiful. And that silence, I thought, whatever I do after Ramadan, I need to keep that silence. I need to keep that calm. So, yeah, it's super powerful.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that I like to think about is after I do something, what's the value? Right. And so, for instance, if we keep on distracting ourselves with these things to avoid that silence, after that's done, what value do I take from it? And a lot of that entertainment, that craving for a constant stimulation doesn't have much value beyond that. But like you said, you take that time in silence and from the outside looking in, it doesn't seem as though every, anything is happening, but you're gaining so much. And that which you've gained, can actually you can actually carry that with you after that time of silence too.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I have also another question that I would love to ask you. You wrote this wonderful article, and I want to thank you for that, about books on negotiation written by women. So you wrote that article in Forbes saying, many people have asked you, why don't women write more books on negotiation? And you say, wait a second, let's challenge that question. And why don't we ask, why don't negotiation books authored by women get more recognition? And then you came up with a list of more than 120 books written by women. And this is just a selection, right? There's even more out there. Right. So why do you think that it's why don't women get more recognition for their work in this negotiation world?
1: Oh, how far back do we go? So when you think about and let me reference these books. So, um, for instance, Women Don't Ask by Linda Babcock, Sarah Lashver. They have a really yeah. interesting uh, sociological I Sarah last
0: week. She's amazing. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that that's great. I did an interview yeah. with Sarah last week. Yeah. That's fantastic. Sarah,
1: Sarah. yes. (laughs) Yes. So they talk about the the sociology applied to gender roles in the business world. And um, going all the way back to the times where, okay, we're hunter-gatherers. Just because of biology, men had to go out and hunt and women Mm -hmm. stayed in to take care of the children. That's what worked for that time and so as we've progressed past that primitive time those roles have made, have been crystallized not because of value but just because of the patriarchy, because of sexism, right? We're not in a, in a stage where our value is determined by physical strength anymore. It's about intelligence, productivity, those type of things. Everybody can be effective in this. Um, but because of the sexism that existed in the business world for centuries, our entire human existence, the idea of what a strong leader is, a good negotiator is, has always been a stereotypical male. And so because of that, Now, when we progress here to the modern day, because all the time the books that have been written about negotiation and business have been authored by men predominantly, we still look to those people who fit a a certain um, character traits, certain Mm -hmm. race, certain everything, right? We say, ah, that's what a negotiation expert should look like. And this is something that I struggle with, too. Most negotiation experts don't look like young black males, right? And so what I wanted to do was take the opportunity to use my platform to amplify the voices of, of women in the industry, because there are people like you, people like Sara uh, Lashever, um, all these people yeah. who are doing fantastic work, but they're not getting the recognition they deserve because they don't fit the mold for what society has constantly said negotiation experts and professionals should look like. Mm-hmm. And so with the podcast, with Forbes and everything that I do, that is an explicit goal to make sure that we, I, I give voice to the, to the women in the industry who are doing great work.
0: Amazing. So we're facing pure human conditioning and unconscious bias, right? I mean, this is all unconscious in our subconscious mind. And we don't even recognize that we do it until, you know, we come up with figures or whatever. So, yeah, that is super important. And talking about, you know, not being the typical, I've experienced that my whole life, whether it was as a professional negotiator, as a female professional negotiator. I don't like to add the word female because I'm just a professional negotiator. That's it. But also before, I, I used to work in investment banking, and for 15 years, I was on trading floors, and that's not that's that's still also very male dominant. And then, so I was often one of the youngest, only female, the only foreigner, or and the shortest. Hmm. I should get all, like awards for how to be the outsider. <laughs> and then still, you have to go through it, and you have to more than others prove that you are worth being there or your value or whatever so but then you know although it's of course it's super unfair and it's annoying and you're facing discrimination and racism and all those things I think if you look at it as a challenge it can also help you to say you know what I have to work harder than the others so how can I develop myself better how can I prepare better how can I Uh, handle no better how can I negotiate better and to go where I want to be and where I think I can be and deserve to be and just not take all the rest personally but as a challenge and obviously that's easier said than done and I wasn't looking at it that way my whole life but now looking back I think having gone through all that and the discrimination part that went with it I actually gained some skills that I might not have had if I wouldn't have gone through that so it doesn't matter All you male white old guys professional negotiators out there (laughs) we're doing exactly the same thing and i'm coming in with all the skills that i had to build to be here you know although it was the hard way so absolutely okay now the whole concept of difficult conversations and negotiations it's something that is for absolutely everybody in every country every age every gender everything And right now, as we know, with COVID-19, there are a lot of difficult conversations happening and there are unfortunately people splitting up, not talking to each other or not seeing each other, you know, be it friends, family, couples, because the COVID-19 crisis brought differences of opinions, whether it's about Masks or no mask, vaccine or no vaccine, anything mandatory or not mandatory. It's creating a lot of difficult conversations. And as an expert on this, what kind of tips could you give to people not to ruin relationships over this health crisis?
1: I think one of the things is recognizing that debates don't work, right? There's a difference between effective negotiation and effective debate. So, for instance, when we are when we're watching the then the the people on the news um, go back and forth, we have to recognize that they're playing a role. They're not allowed to agree with each other on anything. And a lot of times when with the media, they are constantly modeling bad behavior. And so since most people, the vast majority of people never get training on negotiation or conflict resolution, they don't have the skills. And so who do they see having these difficult conversations? Oh, the people in the media. I want to be like them. And Mm -hmm. then we're get we shocked when these conversations that we have using a debate style are constantly (laughs) leading to destruction, right? Destruction of the relationship and we're not being persuasive. And so I think really what we have to recognize is that if you really want to change somebody's hearts and minds, you have to use a more negotiation type of approach to it. Uh, Something I always talk about in my trainings is that there's a difference between being right and being persuasive. Mm. Big difference, right? And a lot of times being persuasive, what it takes to be persuasive in the moment, it's not that it's hard to, to understand, it's that it's hard to do because we don't want to do it. If I, if I disagree with you, I want to let you know where you're wrong and where I'm, where I'm right. And that's the ego going out of control because I wanted to lift myself up while putting you and your beliefs down. Not surprisingly, people don't like when you do that. And so again, what I suggest people do is they use the compassionate curiosity framework because a lot of times people are unable to distinguish between facts and feelings Mm -hmm. And what's really what they're really articulating is a feeling, but they're articulating it in the form of a fact. And so what people end up doing is they wrestle with the fact as if it is the, the truth is what's really going to break that down. But if you recognize that it's actually an emotional barrier, and you use a little bit of empathy, then you can pull people more in your direction. But I think most of these conversations are doomed for failure simply because of the debate style approach.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love the fact that you say that on the media and what we see, they're playing a role. So instead of seeing them as the godfathers of truth, see them as actors. You know, they're mm-hmm. there to say a certain thing in a certain way, with a certain political background, with a certain sponsor behind. And, you know, it, it's not that it's necessarily their personal opinion. Or... And also the feeling what you described, I believe a large majority of what's going on right now, the feeling behind is fear, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have fear of COVID-19, and then you have fear of side effects of vaccines. And that fear, talking to fear, is obviously not going to work. And then you have also, I believe, you know, many people are afraid to die. But if you were to look at people who are afraid to die and ask them like really some honest questions and they would answer back honestly, I believe most people are not afraid to die. They are afraid not to live. So with something like this coming and saying, oh, my God, there's a virus out there. It could kill us. Many people go back to, wait a second, I haven't even lived yet. (laughs) You know, it's too young. It's too early. So then... See that as an opportunity of saying, what is the real fear? Is it fear of dying or is it fear of not actually living? And then what can you do about it? And the whole debate is also, why would you like them to think like you if it's just to outsource your fear there are other ways of doing that you know i mean i don't agree with a lot of things that are happening right now be it the the, the covid measures be it the, the management of it or a lot of things and and i have conversations about this but i'm just not interested in those conversations because i'm not interested in convincing anybody of what i believe and you know if they want to say what they believe that's fine but then you know five minutes that's fine for me okay let's move on to to what really matters here but yeah i think I think you pointed it out very rightly that it's, it's a feeling behind. And as long as we don't acknowledge that feeling, whether it's with others, but also with ourselves. Yes. We're having these conversations for nothing and wasting everybody's time, energy and relationships.
1: Exactly. And I think one of the things we have to do is become a little bit more critical about the value of these difficult conversations, because as much as I promote, hey, let's have these conversations, have these conversations, have these conversations, we have to ask ourselves, what's the impact? What's my goal? What do I hope to accomplish? And a lot of these debates that we have with the people around us, they don't lead to anything. We're just trying to we're just trying to score points. Now, if it's a situation where I have some concerns, let's say I have an underlying health issue, I haven't been vaccinated and somebody wants to socialize with me, then that has an immediate impact on my well-being. And so this conversation now is a conversation of consequence. It matters. We need to have this conversation. But if we're just going back and forth on what should and shouldn't be done by the politicians that we don't get to talk to. then then that has limited utility and you might be better served just listening, empathizing, summarizing, showing that you've heard and moving on.
0: Oh, let's see what will happen. Yeah. Because we're not out of this yet. I think it's wishful thinking to say we're going to vaccinate the world and then everything's going to go back to normal. First of all, what is normal? Second of all, do we want to go back to how it was before? And third of all, you know, if you can have a vaccine and still spread it, I don't see an end in this so the question is how is the world after this gonna look like and how can we impact that and make it the world that we want it to be and with the work that you are doing and that i'm doing how can we you know maybe use this opportunity to to make the whole new world that we have to design anyway a bit more collaborative with a bit less conflict and a bit better conversations also on subjects that we don't agree with and say you know I heard what you're saying and what you're thinking and I can maybe imagine or understand where that's coming from. Now, this is my background and my experience and this is what I believe. And as long as, as you said, it doesn't have a direct impact on the lives of the person you're talking to, let people be. (laughs) be.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Okay, wonderful. Kwame, I love having this conversation. I can truly like go on and on and on, but I know we're both limited by time. If as a final question, you can give tips to people on how to do this. Obviously, we talked about your approach. Why do you think people are not doing... I mean, okay, so they listen to this conversation. Now they know how to do it. And we both know there's still going to be people who are not going to do it. Right. So why is that? What is it that we're really fearing by changing the way we react to things? And and how big is the impact that we can have? I mean, can we really change the way our amygdala goes in fight or flight? Do we really have an impact? And what is the, the gain out of it?
1: Yes. So the reason why most people will listen to this and say, wow, that's a really good point. Yeah, I should do that. And then not do it is because there are lingering psychological and emotional barriers. And that's what the, the book is about, my finding confidence in conflict. And I think people are a lot of people are surprised because they're expecting a book that's just laden with negotiation strategies. But about 60 or 70 percent of the book is dedicated. The first 60 or 70 percent of the book is dedicated to helping you to overcome your psychological and emotional barriers, because with a lot of the the negotiation strategies that we have, we're really just giving recipes to people who are afraid to get in the kitchen. It doesn't matter if you know what to do, if you're still not going to do it. So you have to figure out what it is that's holding you back and work to overcome it. That's one thing. The other thing is we can change our brain. And that's where the exciting science of neuroplasticity comes into into play. Because by repeated interactions, by practicing certain things, we actually, in a very physical, biological sense, change our brains neurons that wire fire together wire together we're creating more neural connections every single time and so you, for a lot of people they've lived their entire life being conflict avoidant and so that is the pattern that has been created in their mind but it's going to take work But if you start to engage in the habit of engaging in these negotiations, these difficult conversations, leaning into it, then you're going to rewire your brain and you're going to start to have these conversations more often. And so I I really want to encourage people to, to start to make that shift because like I said, the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And just using these tips can help to make those conversations easier.
0: Absolutely. Well, this was really a goldmine of information, of what you've shared with us. Thank you so much, Kwame. It was, as always, a pleasure talking to you. For people who want to go further and learn more about you or your work, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. So I'm. Uh, you can find me there. And then, of course, if you want to learn more about the podcast, the workshops, those type of things, check out the American Negotiation Institute.com.
0: OK, thank you so much, Kwame. I know you have a very busy calendar. I had so much pleasure talking to you as always. I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you all for the listeners. And I look forward to bringing you more inspiring guests. <music>